Hello and welcome to the Do Kind Truth Podcast. Yes, you haven't heard from me for a while. This is Margarita, your host, which often fills you in on the latest and greatest of what goes on in the digital electronic world. But I haven't felt it necessary to tell you what has been going on because the world has really done its part in telling everyone what's going on on its own. And I haven't really had to do anything because what has been interesting about the connectivity of the world is that it really does have a sense of transparency. Such can be seen by the recent presidential elections in the United States. What is interesting is this was not a traditional election this year. Unconventional, just as the year 2020 has been for everyone, not only in the United States, but around the world, because of this most peculiar coronavirus, among others, of course. But I would say it has been a tumultuous year on many levels because of what many protocols called for, of course, of social distancing. And people developed the sense of, well, we're going to have to create the understanding of vote by mail as a a necessity because we want people to feel as safe as possible in their voting accessibility. And so, which is understandable. And so as people began voting by mail, that generated a volume of extraordinary levels, which had not been seen before in other elections. Understood, of course, by the societal changes, again, as I mentioned, the coronavirus, a very large part it has played in the year 2020. You can't speak about the coronavirus without the sadness it has brought to so many communities, not only within the United States, but throughout the world. Globally, 50,000, excuse me, 50,000, no, 50 million cases have been seen. And in the United States, although it may seem like a fraction, I was looking at some statistics and what looked at as 20, as 10 million, I had to do a double take and see if that truly was the situation. And it did look as if though that was truly this, the statistic the moment. But I will look at another website this afternoon to calibrate those numbers as they seemingly change by the moment. But where we have arrived at in this country is 100,000 cases a day. And that is the exponential growth that we are seeing, which had been uh, forecasted by the scientific experts months ago. And why 
I bring this up right now when I began talking about elections just moments ago is if you have not been paying attention to the news over the weekend or any social media of any kind, then you have not understood that, yes, these elections are different than years before, but where we are is over the weekend, several news media outlets called the presidential election, noting who the president-elect is at the moment, saying that based on the preponderance of votes, Joe Biden is the president-elect of the United States of America. And Kamala Harris is the vice president-elect of the United States of America. What does that mean, to be president-elect and vice president-elect? Well, it means that, yes, of course, the states still have a certain amount of days to certify the votes and give their certification they will, because then after they certify the votes is when the Electoral College votes are applied, and, of course, as we know in the United States, 270 is the magic number. 270 are the Electoral College votes required to become president. Well, at this moment in time, Joe Biden has 290, and President Trump has 214, according to the Associated Press numbers. Now, of course, if you go to different websites, you could see a different number calibrated based on the different states and who is where and what state has um, been called for what candidate. Because while some states still show as leaning towards one candidate, other states might show as leaning towards another, and I'll explain now. For example, there were several states that still showed up in the air, so to speak. Alaska, leaning towards Trump. Now, Alaska is three electoral votes. And at 214, you could see that if it were to solidify its three electoral votes, it still could not get close to the votes that have already confirmed for Biden. And then there is Georgia, which it is a very slim margin, but as those votes are being counted, it shows as though it is leaning Biden, which is an interesting feat because this state has flipped. It has flipped and great credit is being given to Stacey Abrams for the nonprofit she formed years ago as an organizing entity. North Carolina is currently leaning Trump, and North Carolina 
has 15 electoral college votes. So again, if you look at the 214, and I just mentioned Alaska's three, even if you added the 15 from North Carolina, you still wouldn't get to the amounts that have already been solidified with Biden. This is why Saturday we heard a speech from Biden, Sunday we heard a speech from Biden, and today we heard a speech from Biden. Specifically today, we also heard more information from Biden about what he would be doing specifically to tackle what is going on with this coronavirus in our country. So, he said that he is forming a coronavirus task force that will look towards solving this situation and he began to outline solutions for it. And he did specifically say the importance of wearing a mask. He talked about social distancing, yes. And he also talked about the priorities assigned towards vaccines. And so easily one can look at why it has been so important for people to understand that not only has former Vice President Biden, President-elect Biden, shown leadership under pressure, but he also has exemplified that he has taken the responsibility of what it means to be a President-elect in this transition period, which is a truly serious uh, period of time, which President-elects are given responsibilities, there are budgetary monies assigned during a transition period. And while it is difficult at times for a presidency who does not get reelected to recognize what can be a loss of responsibility, that concession is important. The office itself has already signed over the duties necessary for transitionary responsibilities, and that is why it is notable that one is seeing these speeches and one is seeing the peaceful transfer of power begin to take place because that is what happens in our country. It is what has always happened. We should never have questioned that that would have taken place because it is happening right before our eyes. And so the people that think that that would not happen are crass to believe that our essential principles of democracy would not continue, because they do. Our essential principles of democracy are that of the basic freedoms which are, which are respected, and particularly this week as we enter a very somber, respectful appreciation of our veterans that have fought in previous wars and continue to 
fight in wars and then come back to our country and transition into society in a positive way that they can continue to be members of society in a way that helps the country grow. And so we have to recognize that, especially on November 11th, which is just a few days away, which is our Veterans Day, we will be a country of strength and prosperity that reflects democracy at its best, at its finest, in understanding that we are still a country that respects the principles of democracy. Now, I know you're probably counting how many times I've said democracy, but truly that is the essentiality of what our country is. Has it been a difficult year? Of course it has. Has it been a historic year? Of course it has. And I'll outline a few historical points for just a moment, but it cannot go without being said that while we have lived tumultuous years, the past four years economically, socially, and culturally, we certainly cannot live and stay in those tumultuous moments. We have to be able to then find the positive energy that comes from knowing that good moments are ahead. And certainly, President-elect Biden has outlined several ways in which he feels he exemplifies how to move forward, and certainly how Vice President-elect Harris also exemplifies moving forward. And this is what I just said I would outline. She, too, exemplifies history in the making as the first vice president, female vice president. She has made history and also has made history as the first woman of Jamaican and East Asian descent. She herself having talked very openly about her background. She herself having talked very openly about being a child who went to schools that were being integrated. She herself had talked about the importance of knowing where she came from, of knowing the understanding of where and how she was standing at that, at that podium at the very moment she was debating the person that she felt was part of the history that she was living to change. And then, think about this, she became the running mate of that very person. So, I point that out because history itself has a way of creating itself within itself, to create itself within itself, to become a new moment of history. And we cannot be afraid of creating new moments of history because out of the understanding of where history comes from comes a new moment of history. And that is a synthesis 
which comes from a catharsis. She can't have the synthesis without the catharsis. And it is the understanding of what is within what is because of what is and will. What is because of what came from one particular situation. It isn't until one has developed the understanding of the broader sense of knowledge, which can be a simple definition of one simplicity becoming complex from another. And yes, there are some mathematicians who say, well, it is actually the simplest explanation, which is often the correct but actually, that simple explanation can actually be derived from an extremely complex circumstance. You don't get to the simple explanation until you have derived through and understood various layers of complexity. And so I'm going to pause for a moment, let you think about that, because I may have um, changed some of Occam's razor a little bit, but I really do think that the synthesis of what Occam's razor is, is actually excellent, but it needs further understanding of the depth of what it is, before one can truly appreciate it. You see, because Occam's razor cannot exist without a full understanding of the phenomenon. And I want us to ponder that for a moment. Well, welcome back. Have you taken enough time to think about my comments regarding how Occam's razor on simplicity to complexity to simplicity in solving situations really folds into Fibonacci quite remarkably well? If you need a little more time to think about that, that's perfectly understandable because the concept itself is a little complex. It isn't as simple as you would fold blueberries into pancake batter. No, it isn't that simple. It's much more complex yet simple, really, actually, as much as the explanation of Occam's razor itself. So if you've already looked up the definition of Occam's razor, it isn't a razor that you would use to shave your legs or your mustache with. No, it is a mathematical explanation for solving problems. 
Now, it is in Kepner Trigo, which allows mathematical computation to solve problems, or which in itself is a category, categorization in which you take a problem, Kepner Trigo, you take a problem and you assign it a numerical value. And then you tabulate the numerical values. And then, of course, there's more complication to it. But what comes up as the value, in essence, uh, becomes your more important ones. And those are the ones that you get to more quickly. And then, of course, depending what you are trying to solve in that particular moment, are what you realize are more important and then also what helps you arrive at a decision and of course I'm overgeneralizing the way to arrive at the solution but that gives you kind of a, a nutshell explanation and so the reason that I uh, really identified the concepts when I actually had begun far further in a social conversation having to do with our political existence at the moment in the United States of, oh my goodness, we could easily say we feel that we've been in political campaign season for almost three years, if not longer, it seems. Which, oddly enough, shouldn't be so normalized. We should be able to exist in our societal responsibilities. Of course, recognizing that we have social-political responsibilities as well at times. But not always. We should be socially conscious and politically aware if we have certain responsibilities, but it shouldn't become a 24-hour news cycle responsibility to have to keep up with. Because now, of course, there are the moments where if we are a political scientist, that is our responsibility. Much different. That then becomes our perspective and our responsibility to have to be fully aware of what is happening 24-7. That's different. Much like an engineer would have to know all of the ins and outs of everything having to do with the specialty of their particular engineering skill set. But what happens is when society becomes, as the term goes, wrapped around the axle, around one particular subject, it becomes difficult to focus on other things, particularly when there is an inability to multitask. Not that people can't multitask, but there becomes a removal of the other tasks when only one task is placed on the plate. The plate being the social responsibilities plate. And so, 
over the last three years easily because of so much that has been occurring, and not just domestically, but internationally, because of the topics of concern that have been occurring. Now, unless, of course, you feel as an individual or as a family or as a community that no subject has affected you whatsoever, then what I'm saying makes no sense. But most people do think that there has been a shift. And such is why there has been such an outpour of uh, excitement over a potential change for new dynamism in the White House. Now, that's not to say that everybody should dump on Trump. No, it's definitely not to say that. Because here's the thing. When someone doesn't win an election, it is difficult to arrive at the realization that there will no longer be the responsibilities that once were. There will no longer be the events to attend. Now, of course, once a president always named a president, but not with the same level of responsibilities. But what needs to occur is definitely the conversation of concession. And as not many things have been conventional with this 45th presidency, that is well understood. We should not, as American citizens, have the expectation that it would be a traditional concession speech. However, we could most easily understand that it may well be in the form of an email, in the form of a letter, in the form of a communication from a staffer via another staffer that had been sent from the president, recognizing that it in of itself was a difficult communication to send. And there should be no shaming for it arriving in that manner. And there also should be no expectation that it should have to be a public notification if President 45 feels that he can arrive at a concession speech only by way of a written notification. I mean, I would gladly give him an example of how difficult conversations are when 
the tables turn. Because it's difficult to see perspectives when the shoe is on the other foot. Let me give the example. When you are the person hiring all the time, there is glee. You bring someone on board, you're excited because it's new personnel and it's a thrill to bring people on because you want to have more people on the team. You want to have more people helping. You want to have more people adding ideas, more people exchanging the concepts to build a better team. In this instance, he was building a better America, which is what he was asking for permission when he was first elected. And then he realized some people did not meet his own expectations. And interestingly enough, he almost had a brand new team throughout the entirety of his tenure. And most difficult as it must have been for him to let go of people along the way, he did so. And he did so knowingly, knowing also that he has been known for letting people go. The popularization of his show The Apprentice is not something that goes without saying as something that has created his persona. And so people, understandably, there are many people, people who for years watched The Apprentice. I mean, let's be real. Who didn't watch the show at least once decades ago when it was popular? And who didn't laugh and get excited at the words when he would let people go? from that now infamous boardroom. But let's also be realistic. That is not legally a way to let people go. Because even in at-will employment conditions, a person would not just be let go by being told that they are fired. It would be inappropriate to have someone just be told they were gone in a matter of moments without proving that they had done something incorrectly, even in an at-will employment state. And so the situation when it turns on an individual, and yes, even in circumstances where people who work in the profession of hiring people even professionals who do this for a living fully recognize the tables turn at times and sad professionals become the ones on the other side of the table where one day the individuals themselves become the employee who gets the conversation. Because here's the thing, every person recognizes that they will not be at a company forever. That is 
well known. And so I think that even any human resources professional is well recognizing the circumstances that the odds are at any given moment the tables turn and when they do to be able to walk away gracefully is equally a skill because eventually you will have to walk into another place of employment and apply for another place to work. And if you didn't walk away gracefully previously, then it becomes a disgraceful moment that you will not live down easily, and that is not something that you want to have on your shoulders. Nobody ever does, and nobody ever would, and it is not recommended. What is recommended is appreciate the wonder of having been in the White House, the people's house, the country's house, and know that the tenure of having been there for the amount of time that the presidency allowed for as the people spoke through our vote is exactly what the historic moment called for within the historical context within which it was called for. And upon which the moment arrives when the moment arrives to exit, let it be as graceful as previous presidencies have been, where peaceful transfers of power have been exemplified. Such is my recommendation, because I have been there. I have been there as a person who has hired and as a person who has been on the other side of the table when it has been time to walk away. Walk away gracefully. Because when the moment arrives to seek new employment, building stronger networks relies heavily on 
what you did the last time you left, and how you left, and what conversation you had with the people that you worked with previously, and how that work ethic carried you through. And that is no matter where you work, whether you work at the top levels of government or the essential levels of an organization. Because yes, at times the top levels of government are essential, but also at times the essential levels of an organization are the ones that never get seen, are the ones that never get spoken of, are the ones where people work after hours, are the ones where people work odd hours, are the ones where people work part-time, overtime, and contract time. And yes, there are many circumstances upon which people leave work, but I also want to give one last example of why it's so essential to have that concession, speech or and conversation, expeditiously with Vice President Joe Biden, who has been named President-elect. And now I'm speaking directly to President Trump. President Trump. You see, I once had this part-time job, which was a second job for me that lasted from January to March of one particular year. And you see, it was a part-time job because it helped me with essential household budgetary needs. And I knew when I was hired for this part-time job, it wouldn't last long. But what I didn't know is on what day it would end. And so here's the thing. On the day that I returned to work, I was surprised to be told that that's the day it was ending. But I had to remember that it was short term. And so I walked away gracefully, but it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy because I had been away for a week, you see. I had been away for a week, had not been feeling well, yet I returned and I returned to finish a project. And because I finished that project, I felt so happy and content that I had done the best I could do. And so what I was surprised about was that it happened on the following week. Now, it had nothing to do with the fact that I had not been feeling well and I had been out of work for a few days. It was just a happenstance coincidence because I asked. But you see, my 
my mind quickly jumped to, could it have been? Oh my goodness, is it because I was out of work? Oh, wow. What is going on here? I was working so much to get that project completed. But no, it didn't have anything to do with that. I had to process through all of the details of what I had had as conversations at the beginning of when I was hired. And all of this, mind you, was in my mind of what I was processing. So I wasn't yelling. I wasn't screaming. I was thinking through. And what I did ask clearly was, what is the reason? Why am I being let go? And I was told, something very specific. And it was when I was told that, that I thought about it. And as I thought about it, I thought, oh, okay. Well, so what that was, was not that I had done anything horrible. So it wasn't cause. It wasn't that I had worked too much overtime. It wasn't that I had gone beyond my hours. It wasn't that I had uh, overworked. And it wasn't that I had underperformed on my project. And so I thought about it. What could it be? And the more I thought, so, uh, President Trump, I want you to really think about this, because you have had three years, and I had just a few months. And so, you may think that you have all these remaining years you really want to complete your projects on, but think about it. You have had quite a bit of time to accomplish what you thought that you could accomplish and what you have accomplished. And so, you can really think about what you have accomplished. But before you get frustrated or upset or however you say as you've been talking about in your tweets you want to have this litigious fight in the courts really think about that before you do because many conversations may have already taken place but you really have to understand what the legalities are of the criticality of the democracy of our country and its point in time that we are in now. So I go back to my point. Because then, in thinking further about when I was hired, a simple sentence which was told to me that the funding was limited and when it would run out would be the end of my position because it was a part-time position, and I understood that. I had to recognize that that was a short-term assignment. And so, that was that. But fast forward to what does this have to do with 
the current election situation. Well, years later, I resigned from a board that I was on as a trustee. And I had no idea that after resigning, I would be reading an article because I resigned due to the fact that I was moving out of the area. And in moving out of the area, I could no longer represent the constituents that I represented because there are rules and you have to follow the rules. This is why I'm saying there are rules, Mr. President, that have to be followed for transitionary periods for the incoming presidents. And it really is essential that this concession speech be made. And so when I moved out of the area to stay with other relatives, I made a decision that was essentially going to change some essential responsibilities that I had. But what that meant is I could no longer be a trustee and I had to resign. So I resigned, but I happened to be reading an article and I saw that the person who I used to work for had been elected into the position that I used to have. And that position meant a lot to me. It was something that I had worked so hard at and I didn't get paid for. It was not something that any of the trustees on that board got paid for. And rightly so is our civic responsibility that we all did on that board, but the point that I'm making is when I read that article, I was faced with a decision to make. What do I do at that moment? Because the person that said you're no longer employed just got elected into the very position that I used to sit on representing my previous constituents. Now, that's exciting on many levels, but it's also very intimidating if I'm going to call someone, how do I say that? Because it can be defeating if I don't feel like I can trust the person enough to have a good conversation. So I understand where you're coming from, Mr. President. But let me tell you, because I had respect for the individual that I worked for, I was able to make that. I was able to call her, and I was able to congratulate her, and I was able to wish her well on her future position. Now, it's a difficult phone call to make because I had to separate the intimidation of 
that feeling of, I had not talked to her much about not having worked for her anymore. That's a completely separate conversation that we were able to get beyond, but not fully talk about. But the trustee responsibility was a completely different area, which was so glorious and so important to both of us, apparently, that I could get past that. And so what I'm talking to you about this for is this. If you really respect the presidency, and if you truly respect the American people, we respect the fact that you have the ability to make that phone call, send that email, write that letter, one or the other, or sit down with Vice President Joe Biden in person, whichever, but you've got to do this. You've got to do this soon. Because without that, you are impeding the, it's an essential colloquial necessity for the transitional needs. Because the transition's going to occur whether you do this tra- this concession or not. That is for certain. But for your own psyche, I recommend that you make that call or write that letter or send that email. And definitely do not, do not, do not send another tweet regarding this. For the reason being, there's no need. Because the international community has already responded accordingly, and they've already begun to send congratulatory messages as appropriately. And so the reason I gave you this example, as odd as it sounded, and you're probably never going to hear this message, which is completely fine, but I thought it necessary because, you see, You often have in the past and in your campaign speeches in 2016 referenced people who resembled me as non-achievers who fell under certain categories and often what ended up happening because of comments Um, we became even more stereotyped than we may have been. And as an anomaly to that, um, my unusual ability to interact with everyone and anyone that was adept to being community builders began to change because people became more segmented in society 
And, I mean, it's so much more noticeable now that we are in pods. But I can certainly attest to the fact that I wouldn't be able to, of course, show up at the Supreme Court tomorrow and discuss this at the um, court case that's being heard in California versus Texas, but I'd love to, although I wouldn't be able to because there are no cameras in the courtroom and they would not be able to show this uh, or play this. So that is interesting as a little odd nuance, but it, my point being is the segmentation that has occurred over the last few years and the fragmentation of some of the parts of society that did not occur previously have actually disallowed many people who were successful contributors to society. And this in and of itself has made it difficult for so many people to continue to be fruitful members of society. And this is why I think that though you were extremely successful in so many ways years ago and decades ago, and your name was something that so many people appreciated and valued and laughed at, in a positive way. Now, because people have turned you into a caricature, you really have the ability to turn that around in a way that some presidents have in previous decades. But at this particular juncture in time, there is a lot of frustration in society because of what has happened in the country. And that cannot be ignored. That cannot be dismissed. And I'll give you one last example when I say anomaly. The American people often are confused by anything that doesn't fit a standard because it's easy to appreciate something that makes marketable sense. Your companies are marketable. They make marketable sense. The fact that the emoluments clause became such a large question for you over the beginning of the tenure of your presidency, and it took so long to separate your interests, your personal interests, from your corporate interests during the presidency, spoke to the fact that you were not ready for the presidency when you began to run for the presidency because you did not have the financial preparedness to have entered into the candidacy. 
because you had not already separated out your finances in such a way. And it baffles the mind to think that you lived out the presidency in the White House, in the People's House, in the country's house, thinking that no one ever noticed that this had been occurring. But the um, majority of the people did realize that um, there were members of your cabinet that were convicted and that actually you were impeached in the House of Representatives, although the vote in the Senate did not pass, you actually were impeached on one side of the legislative branch. And one cannot say that no evidence was found. What can be said is that they didn't move forward with prosecution because they were concerned about moving forward with prosecution on their own. And they really thought that the legislative branch would be able to, on their own, find the evidence they needed. And in the end, it doesn't all need to be reopened or re-understood because it's all there, it's all public. But recognize this, many families have been damaged. Many families have been hurt through the process of data deletion, of FISA court violations, of the inability to follow certain procedures, of saying one thing and doing another. But I honestly feel that people were trying to do the best that they could given the circumstances that they had. And from the beginning, it appeared as if though many people did not want to be in the positions that they actually were assigned to. And so I sincerely feel that there are civil servants that want to do the work of being civil servants. This is why I ask you, Mr. President, please allow the transitionary period to take course as it rightly should so that the people who serve as civil servants can do their due diligence and serve in their appropriate capacities because there are people who are qualified to do the work. And I say that as somebody who, I'm not upset that I didn't get hired to work in your, in your, um, in your administration. Because I know that I applied to work, I've applied in other administrations, and I haven't been hired. I say this as an American who knows that there are people who are seriously qualified. If I know that I haven't been hired by your administration or other administrations, then I know that at least I have tried and 
I know that there are people who truly have been able to get those positions that are out there that really have the better qualifications. But nobody can tell me that I didn't try. Because there are people who are absolutely saying that there aren't any individuals like um well like someone who is of minority background that are represented in your administration and guess what i think that there could have been more diversity in your cabinet but based on Perhaps the qualifications that you were seeking, you chose other individuals. And this is why I feel that perhaps in the future, there will be better mechanisms in place that allow for true adversity. And be it individuals that truly get access to programs to services, to positions of responsibility, because I think the type of rhetoric that you continued to talk about in your presidency set back our country decades. And lastly, I did a lot of fact-checking on much of what you said over the years, and there were so many errors. It would have gone on for days if I would keep talking about that now, so I'm not. But the fact that you didn't hire me doesn't mean I'm going to now sit here and tell you all the things. It just means that I think you ought to hear my advice, at least at the end, before you and Melania and Baron enjoy the rest of your decades because I'm worth listening to so my goodness Make that call, write that letter, or send that email. And if you can't put the words together for that, have somebody write it for you. I would do that myself for you, but you know what? You didn't hire me, so I'm not going to. And that's just fine. However, I think for the sake of us as American people, for the sake of our country, you owe it to all of us, whether we voted for you or not, for the sake of the democracy. And so that is the end of this segment of the Dewpoint Report. I'll return in just a moment with an update on other goings-on in the world which are more important than what I just talked.
and the time is 4.15 p.m. Well, welcome back. Have you taken enough time to think about my comments regarding how Occam's razor on simplicity to complexity to simplicity in solving situations really folds into Fibonacci quite remarkably well. If you need a little more time to think about that, that's perfectly understandable because the concept itself is a little complex. It isn't as simple as you would fold blueberries into pancake batter. No, it isn't that simple. It's much more complex yet simple, really, actually, as much as the explanation of Occam's Razor itself. So if you've already looked up the definition of Occam's razor, it isn't a razor that you would use to shave your legs or your mustache with. No, it is a mathematical explanation for solving a problem. Now, it isn't Kepner-Trigo, which allows mathematical computation to solve problems, or which in itself is a categorization in which you take a problem, Kepner-Trigo, you take a problem and you assign it a numerical value. And then you tabulate the numerical values. And then, of course, there's more complication to it. But what comes up as the value in essence, uh, becomes your more important ones, and those are the ones that you get to more quickly. And then, of course, depending what you are trying to solve in that particular moment, are what you realize are more important, and then also what helps you arrive at a decision. And of course, I'm overgeneralizing the way to arrive at the solution, but that gives you kind of a, a nutshell explanation. And so the reason that I uh, really identified the concepts when I actually had begun far further in a social conversation having to do with our political existence at the moment in the United States of Oh my goodness, we could easily say we feel that we've been in political campaign season for almost three years, if not longer, it seems. Which, oddly enough, shouldn't be so normalized. We should be able to exist in our societal responsibilities, of course recognizing that we have social political responsibilities as well at times, but not always. We should be socially conscious and politically aware if we have certain responsibilities, but it shouldn't become a 24-hour news cycle responsibility to have to keep up with. Because now, of course, there are the moments where if we are a political scientist, that is our responsibility. Much different 
that then becomes our perspective and our responsibility to have to be fully aware of what is happening 24-7. That's different. Much like an engineer would have to know all of the ins and outs of everything having to do with the specialty of their particular engineering skill set. But what happens is when society becomes, as the term goes, wrapped around the axle, around one particular subject, it becomes difficult to focus on other things, particularly when there is an inability to multitask. Not that people can't multitask, but there becomes a removal of the other tasks when only one task is placed on the plate. The plate being the social responsibilities plate. And so, over the last three years, easily, because of so much that has been occurring, and not just domestically, but internationally, because of the topics of concern that have been occurring. Now, unless, of course, you feel as an individual or as a family or as a community that no subject has affected you whatsoever, then what I'm saying makes no sense. But most people do think that there has been a shift. And such is why there has been such an outpour of uh, excitement over a potential change for new dynamism in the White House. Now, that's not to say that everybody should dump on Trump. No, it's definitely not to say that. Because here's the thing. When someone doesn't win an election, it is difficult to arrive at the realization that there will no longer be the responsibilities that once were there will no longer be the events to attend. Now, of course, once a president always named a president, but not with the same level of responsibilities. But what needs to occur is definitely the conversation of concession. And as not many things have been conventional with this 45th presidency, that is well understood. We should not, as American citizens, have the expectation that it would be a traditional concession speech. However, we could most easily understand 
then it may well be in the form of an email, in the form of a letter, in the form of a communication from a staffer via another staffer that had been sent from the president, recognizing that it in of itself was a difficult communication to send. And there should be no shaming for it arriving in that manner. And there also should be no expectation that it should have to be a public notification if President 45 feels that he can arrive at a concession speech only by way of a written notification. I mean, I would gladly give him an example of how difficult conversations are when the tables turn. Because it's difficult to see perspectives when the shoe is on the other foot. Let me give the example. When you are the person hiring all the time, there is glee. You bring someone on board, you're excited because it's new personnel and it's a thrill to bring people on because you want to have more people on the team. You want to have more people helping you. You want to have more people adding ideas, more people exchanging the concepts to build a better team. In this instance, he was building a better America, which is what he was asking for permission when he was first elected. And then he realized some people did not meet his own expectations. And interestingly enough, he almost had a brand new team throughout the entirety of his tenure. And most difficult as it must have been for him to let go of people along the way, he did so. And he did so knowingly, knowing also that he has been known for letting people go. The popularization of his show, The Apprentice, is not something that goes without saying, as something that has created his persona. And so people, understandably, there are many people, people, who for years watched The Apprentice. I mean, let's be real. Who didn't watch the show at least once decades ago when it was popular? And who didn't laugh and get excited at the words when he would let people go from that now infamous boardroom? But let's also be realistic. That is not legally a way to let people go. 
Because even in at-will employment conditions, a person would not just be let go by being told that they are fired. It would be inappropriate to have someone just be told they were gone in a matter of moments without proving that they had done something incorrectly, even in an at-will employment state. And so the situation, when it turns on an individual, and yes, even in circumstances where people who work in the profession of hiring people, even professionals who do this for a living, fully recognize the tables turn at times and sad professionals become the ones on the other side of the table where one day the individuals themselves become the employee who gets the conversation because here's the thing every person recognizes that they will not be at a company forever that is well known and so i think that even any human resources professional is well recognizing the circumstances that the odds are at any given moment the tables turn and when they do to be able to walk away gracefully is equally a skill because eventually you will have to walk into another place of employment and apply for another place to work and if you didn't walk away gracefully previously, then it becomes a disgraceful moment that you will not live down easily. And that is not something that you want to have on your shoulders. Nobody ever does. And nobody ever would. And it is not recommended. What is recommended is appreciate the wonder of having been in the White House, the people's house, the country's house, and know that the tenure of having been there for the amount of time that the presidency allowed for as the people spoke through our vote is exactly what the historic moment called for within the historical context within which it was called for. And upon which the moment arrives when 
the moment arrives to exit. Let it be as graceful as previous presidencies have been, where peaceful transfers of power have been exemplified. Such is my recommendation, because I have been there. I have been there as a person who has hired and as a person who has been on the other side of the table when it has been time to walk away. Walk away gracefully. Because when the moment arrives to seek new employment, building stronger networks relies heavily on what you did the last time you left and how you left and what conversation you had with the people that you worked with previously and how that work ethic carried you through. And that is no matter where you work, whether you work at the top levels of government or the essential levels of an organization. Because yes, at times the top levels of government are essential, but also at times the essential levels of an organization are the ones that never get seen, are the ones that never get spoken of, are the ones where people work after hours, are the ones where people work Odd hours are the ones where people work part-time, overtime. And contract time. And yes, there are many circumstances upon which people leave work. I also want to give one last example of why it's so essential to have that concession, speech or and conversation, expeditiously with Vice President Joe Biden, who has been named President-elect. And now I'm speaking directly to President President Trump, you see, I once had this part-time job, which was a second job for me that lasted from January to March of one particular year. And you see, it was a part-time job because it helped me with essential household budgetary and I knew when I was hired for this part-time job, it wouldn't last long. But what I didn't know is on what day it would end. And so here's the thing. On the day that I returned 
can go back. I was surprised to be told that that's the day it was ending. But I had to remember that it was short term. And so I walked away gracefully, but it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy because I had been away for a week, you see. I had been away for a week, had not been feeling well, yet I returned, and I returned to finish a project. And because I finished that project, I felt so happy and content that I had done the best I could do. And so what I was surprised about was that it happened on the following week. Now, it had nothing to do with the fact that I had not been feeling well and I had been out of work for a few days. It was just a happenstance coincidence because I asked. But you see, my mind quickly jumped to could it have been, oh my goodness, is it because I was out of work? Oh, wow. What is going on here? I was working so much to get that project completed. But no, it didn't have anything to do with that. I had to process through all of the details of what I had had as conversations at the beginning of when I was hired. And all of this, mind you, was in my mind of what I was processing. So I wasn't yelling. I wasn't screaming. I was thinking through. And what I did ask clearly was, what is the reason? Why am I being let go? And I was told... something very specific. And it was when I was told that, that I thought about it. And as I thought about it, I thought, oh, okay. Well, so what that was, was not that I had done anything horrible. So it wasn't cause. It wasn't that I had worked too much overtime. It wasn't that I had gone beyond my hours. It wasn't that I had uh, overworked. And it wasn't that I had underperformed on my project. And so I thought about it. What could it be? And the more I thought, so uh, President Trump, I want you to really think about this because you have had three years and I had just a few months. And so you may think that you have all these remaining years you really want to complete your projects on, but think about it. You have had quite a bit of time to accomplish what you thought that you could accomplish and what you have accomplished. And so you can really think about what you have accomplished. 
But before you get frustrated or upset or however you say, as you've been talking about in your tweets, you want to have this litigious fight in the courts, really think about that before you do. Because many conversations may have already taken place, but you really have to understand what the legalities are of the criticality of the democracy of our country and its point in time that we are in now. So I go back to my point. Because then, in thinking further about when I was hired, a simple sentence which was told to me that the funding was limited and when it would run out would be the end of my position because it was a part-time position, and I understood that. I had to recognize that that was a short-term assignment. And so, that was that. But fast forward to what does this have to do with the current election situation? Well, years later, I resigned from a board that I was on as a trustee. And I had no idea that after resigning, I would be reading an article because I resigned due to the fact that I was moving out of the area. And in moving out of the area, I could no longer represent the constituents that I represented because there are rules and we have to follow the rules. This is why I'm saying there are rules, Mr. President, that have to be followed for transitionary periods for the incoming presidents. And it really is essential that this concession speech be made. And so when I moved out of the area to stay with other relatives, I made a decision that was essentially going to change some essential responsibilities that I had. But what that meant is I could no longer be a trustee and I had to resign. So I resigned, but I happened to be reading an article and I saw that the person who I used to work for had been elected into the position that I used to have. And that position meant a lot to me. It was something that I had worked so hard at and I didn't get paid for. It was not something that any of the trustees on that board got paid for. And rightly so, it was our civic responsibility that we all did on that board. But the point that I'm making is when I read that article, I was faced with a decision to make. What do I do at that moment? Because the person that said you're no longer employed just got elected into the very position that I 
used to sit on representing my previous constituents. Now, that's exciting on many levels, but it's also very intimidating if I'm going to call someone, how do I say that? Because it can be defeating if I don't feel like I can trust the person enough to have a good conversation. So I understand where you're coming from, Mr. President. But let me tell you, because I had respect for the individual that I worked for, I was able to make that call. I was able to call her, and I was able to congratulate her. And I was able to wish her well on her future position. Now, it's a difficult phone call to make because I had to separate the intimidation of that feeling of, I had not talked to her much about not having worked for her anymore. That's a completely separate conversation that we were able to get beyond, but not fully talk about. But the trustee responsibility was a completely different area, which was so glorious and so important to both of us, apparently, that I could get past that. And so what I'm talking to you about this for is this. If you really respect the presidency, and if you truly respect the American people, we respect the fact that you have the ability to make that phone call, send that email, write that letter, one or the other, or sit down with Vice President Joe Biden in person, whichever, but you've got to do this. You've got to do this soon. Because without that, you are impeding the, it's an essential colloquial necessity for the transitional needs. Because the transition's going to occur whether you do this, tra this concession or not. That is for certain. But for your own psyche, I recommend that you make that call or write that letter or send that email. And definitely do not, do not, do not send another tweet regarding this. For the reason being, there's no need. Because the international community has already responded accordingly, and they've already begun to send congratulatory messages as appropriately. And so the reason I gave you this example as 
odd as it sounded, and you're probably never going to hear this message, which is completely fine, but I thought it necessary because, you see, you often have in the past and in your campaign speeches in 2016 referenced people who resembled me as non-achievers um, who fell under certain categories and often what ended up happening because of comments um, we became even more stereotyped than we may have been and as an anomaly to that um, my unusual ability to interact with everyone and anyone that was adept to being community builders began to change because people became more segmented in society. And I mean, it's so much more noticeable now that we are in pods. But I can certainly attest to the fact that I wouldn't be able to, of course, show up at the Supreme Court tomorrow and discuss this at the um, court case that's being heard in California versus Texas. But I'd love to, although I wouldn't be able to because there are no cameras in the courtroom and they would not be able to show this uh, or replay this. So that is interesting as a little odd nuance. But it, my point being is the segmentation that has occurred over the last few years and the fragmentation of some of the parts of society that did not occur previously have actually disallowed many people who were successful contributors to society. And this in and of itself has made it difficult for so many people to continue to be fruitful members of society. And this is why I think that though you were extremely successful in so many ways years ago and decades ago and your name was something that so many people appreciated and valued and laughed at, in a positive way. Now, because people have turned you into a caricature, you really have the ability to turn that around in a way that some presidents have in previous decades. But at this particular juncture in time, there is a lot of frustration in society because of what has happened in the country. And that cannot be ignored. That cannot be dismissed. And I'll give you one last example when I say anomaly. The American people 
often are confused by anything that doesn't fit a standard. Because it's easy to appreciate something that makes marketable sense. Your companies are marketable. They make marketable sense. The fact that the emoluments clause became such a large question for you over the beginning of the tenure of your presidency, and it took so long to separate your interests, your personal interests, from your corporate interests during the presidency, spoke to the fact that you were not ready for the presidency when you began to run for the presidency because you did not have the financial preparedness to have entered into the candidacy because you had not already separated out your finances in such a way. And... It baffles the mind to think that you lived out the presidency in the White House, in the People's House, in the country's house, thinking that no one ever noticed that this had been occurring. But the um, majority of the people did realize that um, there were members of your cabinet that were convicted and that actually you were impeached in the House of Representatives, although the vote in the Senate did not pass, you actually were impeached on one side of the legislative branch. And one cannot say that no evidence was found what can be said is that they didn't move forward with prosecution because they were concerned about moving forward with prosecution on their own. And they really thought that the legislative branch would be able to, on their own, find the evidence they needed. And in the end, it doesn't all need to be reopened or re-understood because it's all there. It's all public. But recognize this. Many families have been damaged. Many families have been hurt through the process of data deletion, of FISA court violations, of the inability to follow certain procedures, of saying one thing and doing another. But I honestly feel that people were trying to do the best that they could given the circumstances that they had. And from the beginning, it appeared as if though many
many people did not want to be in the positions that they actually were assigned to. And so I sincerely feel that there are civil servants that want to do the work of being civil servants. This is why I ask you, Mr. President, please allow the transitionary period to take course as it rightly should so that the people who serve as civil servants can do their due diligence and serve in their appropriate capacities because there are people who are qualified to do the work. And I say that as somebody who, I'm not upset that I didn't get hired to work in your in your um, in your administration because I know that I applied to work I've applied in other administrations and I haven't been hired I say this as an American who knows that there are people who are seriously qualified if I know that I haven't been hired by your administration or other administrations then I know that at least I have tried, and I know that there are people who truly have been able to get those positions that are out there that really have the better qualifications. But nobody can tell me that I didn't try, because there are people who are absolutely saying that there aren't any individuals like um well like someone who is of minority background that are represented in your administration and guess what i think that there could have been more diversity in your cabinet but based on perhaps the qualifications that you were seeking you chose other individuals and this is why I feel that perhaps in the future there will be better mechanisms in place that allow for true adversity, and be it individuals that truly get access to programs, to services, to positions of responsibility, because I think the type of rhetoric that you continued to talk about in your presidency set back our country decades. And lastly, I did a lot of fact-checking on much of what you said over the years, and there were so many errors. It would have gone on for days if I would keep talking about that now, so I'm not. But the fact that you didn't hire me doesn't mean I'm going to now sit here and tell you all the things. It just means that I think you ought to hear my advice, at least at the end, before you and Melania and Baron enjoy the rest of your decades because 
I'm worth listening to. So my goodness, make that call, write that letter, or send that email. And if you can't put the words together for that, have somebody write it for you. I would do that myself for you, but you know what? You didn't hire me, so I'm not going to. And that's just fine. However, I think for the sake of us as American people, for the sake of our country, you owe it to all of us, whether we voted for you or not, for the sake of the democracy. And so that is the end of this segment of the Dewpoint Report. I'll return in just a moment with an update on other goings-on in the world which are more important than what I just talked. And the time is 4.15 p.m. Well, hello. You're probably wondering where I've been for a couple of days. This brief pause was necessary for the following reason. You know, on November 10th, there was a very important conversation that took place the United States Supreme Court. It had to do with California versus Texas. I'll speak about that in just a moment in further detail. And on November 11th, of course, Veterans Day. How could I not allow you, the listener, the entire day to pause and remember what was originally Armistice Day on 11-11-11. Which, though, in today's conversation, Veterans Day has become a true understanding of not only how it began as Armistice Day, the ending of World War I, by the signing of a particular treaty, but also the fact that how we treat our veterans today is, is so essential to how we move forward as a country, not only for how we continue in strength as a country, but how we continue to become an even better United States of America. There are many who would say that the apparent fragmentation of our statehoods seemingly looks more as a disorganized grouping of states. But this is not true. This is not true, and it is so clearly noted in the recent elections. 
Why do I say this? Well, when I first began this particular conversation a few segments ago, it had to do with the importance of looking at how each and every state was beginning to call the elections and how the process of then going through and certifying those votes and how then that becomes the Electoral College, not essentially by default, but how the delegates will then cast their votes and the Electoral College will be known at that time. And I'm not going to go into detail as to how, as a country, we became... the type of country that has an electoral college. Other than to say, it was thought to be essential so that there would be a counterbalance in the pendulum to best understand a sense of reason amongst people who could look at the broader picture as to the nation as a whole. I'll leave it at that. And if anyone ever has any questions as to what I mean by that, I'm happy to understand. I'm happy to answer questions. You can always email me at. Well, when I say at, I don't mean the ampersand. Actually, it isn't ampersand. It's the little carrot symbol, isn't it? I don't mean that. I mean actually the email. The dewpoint report at gmail.com is where questions are always welcome. Further noting, though, why I was making that point is though there are people who say there has been misuse of the ballots or fraud. There is no evidence of widespread fraud, as has been noted by the secretaries of state that have been responding to such allegations. In some states, there have been recounts requested, which are currently occurring. And as those recounts occur, So, too, are there some lawsuits that have taken place that are also being put forth to courts, some of which have already been dismissed. But I will reiterate what so many elections officials have said over and over again. These elections have brought an unprecedented amount of citizens to the polling precincts with their vote, either by vote by mail ballot or in person. And one can see that the over 100 million ballots that were submitted in vote by mail or early voting, already had established a clear visibility that people wanted to have their voice heard. 
And then this continued on the very last days towards leading up to and ending in the election day itself, where people stood in line waiting to cast the ballot. And this is where we are today. And I reiterate what I said in the previous segment, that as a projected winner, former Vice President Biden has been named as President-elect. And Senator Kamala Harris has been named as vice president-elect. Conversations have begun, of course, for transitionary period towards and leading up to Inauguration Day, January 20th, 2021. Absent still, is a formalized concession from the current president, President Trump. And as I mentioned before, though it may arrive by email, by letter, by phone call, or a personal visit, the concession will arrive because that is exactly what we do as a country. We exemplify peaceful transfers of power. And this is critical, and it will happen, if it hasn't already. Necessary, of course, because, as I mentioned before, on the 10th of November, a very important conversation took place at the Supreme Court Justice in the United States. It had to do with a case named California versus Texas. Why do I bring that up twice? When the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act was originally passed as one of the centerpieces of the Obama administration, it had a several components to it, one of which was protections from discrimination of pre-existing conditions. Now, I may not be giving you the exact wording, but what that means, in essence, is that people with pre-existing conditions would not be discriminated against in such a way that they would be refused health care coverage on the grounds that they had pre-existing conditions. So then the question is, what is a pre-existing condition? Well, some people get stuck on the fact that, yes, if a woman is pregnant, that is classified as a pre-existing condition. 
But that's not the only thing that is a pre-existing condition. So, no, it isn't just women who are going to then fall under the category of pre-existing conditions. And so, when we talk about anyone who's ever had a condition that classifies as a medical condition which has kept them under the weather, not like a simple cold or things like that, but say, for example, you've had surgery for something, a gallbladder removed, a, um, a cyst removed, um, a benign tumor removed, a um, myocardial infarction, it, you've had a transient ischemic aneurysm, you know, it, these are all things that might fall under and would more likely fall under pre-existing conditions. And, and so then one begins to wonder, well, what about all this talk about COVID-19, the coronavirus, all the individuals that have been hospitalized and then recovered? Because, you know, we do often hear of all the individuals that, all the cases, because we hear of the cases, the 10 million cases, but how often do we hear of the recoveries that take place? Yes, the individuals that have recovered from COVID-19 would then be categorized as people who have had a pre-existing condition. And uh, one thing to remember as well is it isn't that simple. It isn't because one has had a simple cold or a simple feeling of indigestion or a sore throat or something like that. It's when something is more complex like that, especially when someone's been hospitalized. And why the case, California v. Texas? Well, because in the Trump administration there had been a promise to dismantle the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, and there had been many attempts to do that, components of it were actually taken apart, and so much of it had been taken away that there were pieces still left. There are pieces still left. And so then, the question was, shouldn't the pre-existing conditions component also be removed? And so large concern was had about if the pre-existing conditions are removed, then is that going to mean that insurance companies could discriminate against people who have pre-existing conditions? And the answer that most people were giving was yes. And so one can imagine, and you don't have to imagine, you could really see that coming, like a car driving on the wrong side of the road, which is really scary. And this is why it was an important conversation and it couldn't be missed. And this is why a lot of people were concerned about why there was such a big hurry to put a Supreme Court justice on the Supreme Court instead of waiting, such as uh, President Abraham Lincoln had requested to wait after his campaign for re-election would take place back in the 1800s, which is what he felt was the best thing to do. 
when there was an open seat at the time. Well, that's why the conversation was being had as to there should be a waiting and allowing for the campaign to take its course, elections to happen, and then after the election, then the new president, whomever it be, make the nomination, and then the hearing in the Judicial Committee could take place, and then from there be able to have the um, both the Judicial Committee vote on moving it forward to the Senate, and then the Senate being able to move for vote on a candidate for the Supreme Court. But the the curiosity became a, uh, it became a, a serious concern by many because they had seen what had occurred when a nomination had been ignored during the Obama administration again. And this wasn't about, like, well, this happened in this administration, and then this happened in the other administration, and so it wasn't about this for that, and all of a sudden somebody was getting back at somebody else, and egos were flying back and forth. It wasn't really about that. It was about the the protocols that really have been in place for generations, the understanding that the responsibilities that occur in a magnanimous responsibilities such as the presidency are far beyond what sometimes people may just see as, well, that person is just upset at, at another person and they're overreacting. Well, when uh, people began to explain what had happened, for example, in the 1800s, and then actually there had been a request to hold a nomination, there was precedent. And... You may be thinking as you listen to this, it's a moot point because Associate Justice Amy Coney Barrett is already voted in. She's already in her appointment as Supreme Court Justice, Associate Supreme Court Justice. And this is no longer a conversation. Well, the reason it's still a conversation is because this is an example of the type of case that will come before an Associate Supreme Court Justice, and the reason that I bring this up is if anybody was paying attention to the details of the answers that were being given, when Justice Amy Coney Barrett was asked if she knew how many cases there were of COVID-19 across the country, at that particular moment when she was being asked, there were just over 700,000 and she didn't know. She didn't know how many there were. Now, I understand that a person's skill set is their area of expertise. They're a subject matter expert in what they're great at. I understand that. But in reaching the highest court of the country, I would have expected and anticipated that her knowledge would have been multifaceted, not only because the 
particular case that I referenced was about to, it was actually already on the docket. And we've all been subject across the country and across the world to the effects of what it means to have to stay home, shelter in place, wearing a mask, staying six feet apart from other people outside, and washing our hands for 20 seconds while singing happy birthday to ourselves. And so the most interesting thing that I found was how someone could not have, could not have known a number even close to what, I mean, even just to have been 100,000 off of what the number was would have been close to a clear understanding because where we are today as a country is based on what projections were provided uh, months ago is that there would be approximately 100,000 cases growing just about every day. And we are seeing that now, sadly, we are seeing that. And I know that people are recovering, but we are also seeing so many people continue to perish. And what that means, it, to me, what that means is when she answered that she didn't know how many cases there were in the United States, is that she didn't follow other aspects of what was going on in the country. And particularly, if, if that was not being followed, then... What other areas is she not following that she might not have an awareness of that would be really important when she is then going to make decisions? And so, suffice to say, though, I, I'm certainly not pointing her out in a way that is um, admonishing her inability to answer that one question, because it was quite clear that she had knowledge in many other areas from how she was answering. However, that surprised me. And what I can say is that because of the way that the court discussed the case itself a couple days ago, they have a clear understanding of how critical the coverage is that people have currently with current employers or with states that have residents of the state covered under specific protections of the Affordable Care Act that still exist, be it through Medicaid, be it through their particular state coverage program, public or private, and they really understand the criticality of the pre-existing condition clause remaining in place. And so why I mention that is, although I paused on November 9th, thinking that I would get back to the conversation in a way that I could articulate what was about to happen on November 10th in a way that would... give this particular synopsis that I just gave, I wasn't able to synthesize those thoughts effectively or clearly. And so I waited. I waited until I could provide a better sense of clarity on the concept itself. 
And it wasn't until today, until today, because yesterday, on Veterans Day, I wanted to take a pause for the day and really remember all of the individuals who have served our country, those who have returned and those who have not, because there are many who continue to serve the country. And there are many who return and though they are no longer in uniform, they then find a way to transition back into civilian life. And I think we've learned a lot as a country how to respect our veterans because we have a much better understanding of how important it is to ensure that people are pro properly transitioned, not only with employment, but with benefits and with ways to enjoy the communities in which they live, so that if they want to become entre entrepreneurs, if they want to go into private companies to work in, if they want to work for public companies, that they have those opportunities, if they want to go back to school, that they have those opportunities. And it was so interesting, yesterday, one of the individuals talked about how he went back to get his GED. And many years later, he felt that it was an accomplishment that he seemed to feel as if though people were giving him accolades he didn't deserve. And it was interesting because of course he deserved the accolades, having worked towards his GED, any completion of moving forward so that he could then feel that sense of accomplishment. I once was at a graduation and there was a gentleman that had just finished his AA and he was in his 80s. And so the reason I spoke of the uh, other individual getting his GED is because it matters not the age, it matters the determination and the want to succeed. The individual that at the graduation that I was at for that particular ceremony, they uh, talked about the individual who was in his 80s and accomplishing this goal of attaining his AA, his associate's degree. And again, it speaks to the fact that when people set their mind to something very positive, they can accomplish it. And it's so important and essential. And this is why I talk about the, the individual in his 80s was not a veteran, an individual nonetheless who wanted to complete his education. I'm remembering him right now because he also had that same passion to complete his education. Yesterday's example of the person who completed his GED 
is equally impressive in that here is an individual who has decided that in order to begin the next chapter in his life, he requires completion of a particular goal. And he set his mind to accomplishing that goal. Now he has accomplished that goal. And well, here he is. Now he can note that as completed. And that is an example of how communities close and far can support community members, veterans, who want to set goals and complete them. Because transitioning into society can be as simple as an educational goal or a business goal or a work goal. And that is why yesterday it was so important to just pause and appreciate the moment of the day, as I do on Veterans Day. Because we often get worried about what's going to happen every single day in our worry to accomplish. But do we take the moment to understand the responsibilities that we have as community members, as members of the neighborhoods in which we live in, the members of families that we belong to. Because when we do, is when we better understand how we truly are interconnected in this strength of resilience that a country has truly shown over generations through so much that we have endured. Difficult and impressive. Not all things are fantastic. But many fantastic things are derived from the achievements of many who have taken the time to dedicate themselves towards success.